Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trond Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurize.org store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. John, welcome. How are you? John, great to be with you. Yeah, I thought we'll talk a little bit about uh, capitalism and, and some of its challenges and some of the ideas that you have for its future. Sounds good. What challenges? Yeah. Is there a problem? <laughs> Any challenges? No, is there a problem here? <laughs> John, you uh, you you studied economy uh, at U Michigan, and then you got an MBA, which is also somewhat uh, related to economics. Uh, and then you have a career in banking uh, at J.P. Morgan, spending a lot of time in in New York, I'm assuming. But then it seems that 2010, you became a founder of something that still has to do with capital, Capital Institute. Um, but something happened there, um, and I want you to just explain, well, you know, what happened, uh, and uh, also tell me if I got your background wrong, because you, you're you're now obviously f- uh, full time working with uh, this Capital Institute. You write a future of finance blogs. You're very deeply concerned still with the topics um, of finance and mm-hmm. capitalism, but from a slightly different angle. And I want you to maybe explain uh, how that all happened and, and what the difference is now. Sure, I'll, I'll try to be succinct. Um, I, I did work in in Wall Street or on Wall Street for nearly 20 years, um, uh, not just in New York, but New York, Tokyo, London. I was kind of the, you know, it was in the mid 80s, late 80s and 90s, sort of the, the when the whole globalization um, process happened in finance and, and it was, you know, it was heady times, exciting times. I was, I was largely involved in the creation and development of the derivatives business, which, uh, again, you know, 
what could go wrong <laughs> uh, with that. But it was an exciting time that was transforming the way capital markets worked. And I ended up my time at JP Morgan, uh, having moved out of capital markets into the, the private investment area and learning how to invest capital. And it was really there that I began to think about aligning capital and social purpose and um, and began doing what actually at Morgan, what we now call impact investing, the idea of investing in projects that have a social and or environmental purpose in addition to a, a financial purpose. And uh, the merger with Chase in at the beginning of 2001 <clears throat> was kind of my excuse to walk away. Um, I had been wrestling with what I was doing with my career um, for years before that, but that kind of gave me permission to to step away and take a break and take some time off. I took the summer off, and and as um, chance would have it, I I ended up um, experiencing 9/11 up close and in person. Literally the first day I went back into the city to think about what I wanted to do next, and um, and that experience. Um, obviously affected all of us in, in different ways. It affected me very profoundly. It, it pushed me into what I would, what I call my deep think period. And I, I started reading books that bankers don't read and, um, philosophy, spirituality through that. I discovered the environmental crisis as a systemic issue. I discovered there was such a thing as system science and you could get a PhD at MIT in system science. And um, and there was this sort of this rolling epiphany that that all of the things that one learns at a place like J.P. Morgan, you know, the bastion of banking of of, of you know big global capitalism uh, was was flawed. And and I don't even really mean the ethical flaws, which there are many, but the system design was inherently unsustainable and un, um, uh, it couldn't continue. And it, it sort of boils down to exponential growth on a finite planet is in conflict with the laws of physics. And, and we happen to live in at a time where the chickens are coming home to roost. And, you know, climate change is one symptom of that that we all now are very familiar with. But that's really just a symptom of this fundamental system design flaw. So as you mentioned in, in 2010, which again is 10 years after, or nine years after I left Wall Street, um, the financial crash really gave me the courage to put out a shingle and, and say, hey, this is actually a question that needs to be explored and, and in a legitimate way. And, and uh, so I created a little think tank, for lack of a better term, to explore these questions of the future of economics, the future of capitalism. And in particular, the dominant role our finance ideology plays in driving us in the direction we're heading. So, so that's the story, the origin story of Kepler Institute. Yeah. So, uh, I I want to stop at a couple of things you said. First, you said the uh, well earlier with me. You said the old Morgan was a wonderful culture. I want you to um, not just explain, I guess, what the banking culture is about for you or was about, but also something you just said, which is. It's hard in banking to uh, see that there, there are these fields like system science and, and the, even the environmental crisis wasn't something that was on your radar. I just have a naive question. We're, we're in 2010 or let's call it, you know, 9-11. So, you know, earlier, how is it that 
if you're right, that people in banking don't focus at all on neither systemic science and systemic risks, uh, nor on uh, the environment specifically. Yeah. I mean, I've wrestled with that question for, for over a decade. And, and it would be, I mean, for sure today it's different. I, I don't think there's any banker who doesn't contemplate climate change and how it affects not only the world, but also the business of finance and the whole move toward ESG and the reporting. I mean, if, if nothing else, it's at least a new headache they have to deal with. Um, but, I, but, but I've been shocked um, at how, well, put it this way, I, I was very naive. I, I went off, I learned a bunch of stuff, I had this kind of epiphany, and I thought to myself, okay, now I know why I left the bank. It was to go out and do this search and then bring back the goodies to the powerful people that run the world and explain to them that I had found this new discovery and, oh, my God, this changes everything. We need to rethink how we do everything. And, uh, and certainly they would respect me because I am one of them and I'm not some crazy, quote, tree hugger. And I thought about it deeply. I studied it. I didn't just randomly, you know, it wasn't sort of some random thought. And I, I was certain that once I got some airtime with people who were in positions of power, and some of them were my friends, that I would be able to explain to them what I had uh, uncovered. And it was, um, it, it was and remains a frustration of mine, and, and, a, and, a, and I'm perplexed as to why something that I saw, and it's not that I'm smarter than these people. I'm probably not as smart as these people, but somehow I was able to see it in through a new lens that is unique and somehow they're unable to see it. And I think it, it boils down to worldviews and ideology. And, you know, there's that old expression about not, you know, not seeing something that makes, uh, what, what I can't even think of it now that, when when your livelihood depends on not seeing something, you don't see it. You know the the, the point yeah. is that we're conflicted, and everyone's conflicted. You know, but but certainly if you work on Wall Street, um, and value is created through exponential growth on a finite planet and extracting value from transactions, that's a term we use in finance: extract value. Like you're going right to the heart of what we do as financiers if you question if you if you raise the questions i'm raising and um uh i i remember like it was yesterday i was uh, you know one of the books one of the teachers of mine is is the, what i who, who i would refer to as the great herman daly who passed away just recently uh, and i was reading his book he, he's really the founder of this field that is called ecological economics which is quite distinct from environmental economics, not to get into the, the jargon. But um, he is the one that first um, um, you know, promoted this idea that exponential growth on a finite planet is in conflict with the, the laws of entropy in a, in a systematic way. And um, he wrote a book called For the Common Good, which is written with John Cobb, who's a theologian, and uh, there's one chapter in it 
where he explains the difference between oikonomia, which is the Greek root for economics, which means management of the household, and a term called kremastasis, which I suspect you've never heard, most people have never heard, I'd never heard. And kremastasis, also from the Greek, means the use of money to make money. And you could, you could translate it as speculation. Um, some people would translate it as usury and you know, lending. But uh, Aristotle, believe it or not, wrote about it and said that kremastasis is unnatural, meaning in conflict with the natural order of things. And it came to me that modern finance has essentially become kremastasis uh, or kremastistics, I think. I can't even, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And yet we confuse that, we, you know, to, to put it in simple terms, we confuse financial speculation with investment uh, as if they're the same things. And if you generate 12% risk adjusted return, no matter whether you're doing it speculating in stocks or investing in windmills, it's the same thing. And so to answer your question, I think we in finance, and I, I put myself in this category, have become so uh, accustomed to the abstraction that finance is that we've lost the distinction between things that are connected to reality, the real world, the real biosphere, physics, chemistry, um, uh, biology, that we, we don't see, we can't see anymore what, what's real and what's abstract, um, if that makes sense. So it's, no, that makes, that makes sense. So it's not, it's not that bankers are dumb or don't see this. It's that they're, their, their brains have been wired in a way that makes it either hard or impossible to, to see the implications of this. And then you combine that with the implications are not friendly to their, their, their career and their, their ambition to make money and pursue their career that it's easier to not deal with it, I guess. I want to get back to that issue of whether it's friendly or not to their career. But first, let's talk uh, uh, about the principle. So you, you are the architect of regenerative economics or capitalism as a, as a principle, together with obviously a lot of other thinkers. But uh, this 2015 booklet that you wrote, Regenerative Capitalism, has become a bit of a reference point. And the subtitle is How Universal Patterns and Principles Will Shape the New Economy. Can you just quickly outline what that is, because nowadays a lot of people speak of regeneration, and I do understand it to be a, a pretty radical departure from extractive capitalism at least. What are the absolute core tenets of, of this new idea of uh, economics? So the, the, the core idea is actually quite simple. Um, the, the, I, I describe it as there are three premises. The first is that the economy is a living system, although an unhealthy one. But if you and I are living systems as human beings and the ecosystems we live in are living systems, our families are living systems, um, you know, since James Lovelock and, and um, uh, Lynn Margolis defined the entire biosphere as a living system, uh, that was very controversial when they proposed it, but now is increasingly accepted as, as reality. The, the first premise is simply that the human economy is embedded in this greater living system called the biosphere. And therefore, if it's to be healthy, it too needs to behave like 
other living systems. Um, so, so premise one, the human economy is a living system. Two, premise two is that if it's to be healthy, there are patterns and principles that all living systems seem to obey or they're no longer here. They're dead systems. If they're living systems, they follow these same patterns and principles. And that's now, um, you know, it's, it's not as clear as laws of physics, but it's generally agreed and understood within the world of ecology and biology that there are these patterns and principles that describe how living systems work. And then the third premise of regenerative economics is that um, if the human economy is to be sustainable over a long period of time, it will need to transform into alignment with these same patterns and principles. And I won't go through the eight principles I defined. There are no right eight principles. That's one person's best effort to describe something that's way more complex than that can be reduced to eight principles. But for example, the, the one principle I would, I would lead with is what I call right relationship, which is this idea of uh, the different parts of the system work in symbiotic relationship, right relationship with each other. So, you know, your heart works in right relationship with your lungs or you're not alive. The sun works in, or the, the earth itself works in right relationship with the sun. It's exactly the right distance from our sun or we wouldn't be having this conversation. And if you look to all living systems, you find this mutualism, collaborative nature throughout living systems. So ironically, capitalism has emerged on this idea of competition and survival of the fittest, which is actually a misunderstanding of what Darwin was talking about. And in fact, as Janine Benyus taught me, uh, the author of Biomimicry, living systems evolve so that they don't compete, parts don't compete with each other, they collaborate. And survival of the fittest really means the ones who survive are the ones that fit into the system as a whole and create a niche for themselves. So it's just one example of how our modern capitalist system is actually diametrically opposed to how living systems actually work. Uh, well, it's an interesting point that people uh, haven't even uh, understood capitalism, right? Because survival of the fit, uh, or, nor biology, because yeah. uh, like you said, survival of the fittest, actually, I think what Spencer wasn't even Darwin that, that yeah. formulated it. So it's a whole, the history here is very different from most people. Uh, what most yeah, realize. Darwin used the term later, but you're right. Spencer coined it. And, um, uh, but, but as Darwin, as I understand, as Darwin used it, it was about this idea of best fit. So, Again, a giraffe has a long neck so they can eat leaves off the top of the tree and don't have to compete with a zebra who are eating the grass. It's literally that kind of thing. So my, my curiosity here lies a little bit in how radical of a principle this is, especially in the transition period that you en envision for this, because there are people who associate uh, with the term post-growth or uh, degrowth, and those people would, I would assume, be e a bit more radical than what you're saying, because they're they're sort of negating the fact that capitalism can continue in some way to really exist, and they're saying we need to break with the past 100%, and there's no transition time, it's just a question, and when it happens, it happens. Mm. It seems to me, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but you're sort of saying 
there is still a way that we can align these things. And, and you seem to have a certain allowance to, to you want to communicate with your former uh, economic species, uh, mm -hmm. economists and, and bankers, and, and you, you're sort of allowing a bit more for a time of transition. Can you speak a little bit about this potential time of transition mm. or this sort of rupture point? Is it necessarily capitalism or regenerative capitalism, or is there a transition and what would that transition mm. look like? What does it consist of? Well, I, I guess the first thing I have to say is that anyone who tells you they think they know the answer to a question like that, it, you know, hasn't thought about it hard enough. I, I am um, very anxious to find a pathway forward that is realistic and um, you know, uh, credible, and and in a sense, science-based, uh, not utopian, but that offers a an alternative to you know, pack up our bags, fold up our tents. We're way over our limits. The only choice is to shrink the economy down, shrink the population down. Do more with, you know, do do with less. I, I'm not saying that's not the that's not a likely possible truth. I, I do think that the, you know, if if I were to to distinguish the ecological economics um, conclusion, which is that you know we need to shrink the economy, get back within ecological boundaries, and um, essentially share more. You know, that the pie is finite, the planet is finite, therefore the pie is finite, therefore we need to um, power down and learn to live differently. I, you know, in many ways I'd have to acknowledge, I think that's the base case uh, of reality. But what it, why I'm so passionate about this regenerative paradigm, and I would argue it's more radical than the degrowth paradigm. In, in, a, in an interesting way, the degrowth paradigm, pe people who are who are arguing at degrowth would probably, if they're not deeply familiar with my thinking, would assume that I'm I'm somewhat of an apologist for the capitalist system because I came from it. So I'm trying to find my way to protect. That is actually not true. I, I actually um, the reason I argue I'm, I'm actually more radical than a degrowth ecological uh, economics perspective is that I believe in what we in the regenerative space call regenerative potential, and potential is what exists but can't, but we don't yet see, we don't yet know, and it's not the same as technology innovation will save us, but it's the think about the potential. When I get, do my course, I I start with you know one molecule of. Uh, uh, sorry, two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen in right relationship created water. So if we lived in a world where there were just molecules running around disconnected and someone said, well, what's the potential of life? You couldn't even imagine what life would be like because without water, there's no life. So you couldn't imagine life. But in right relationship, H2O creates water, which creates the potential for all life. In the same way, you know, a married couple or a couple of any sort may choose to have children 
And that child will manifest potential that always existed. The moment those two individuals exist and decide to have a child, that potential gets manifested. But what that child does in the world, you know, if it's Einstein, no one could have imagined what Einstein would, would do. So the, the thing about living systems and life itself is that for, you know, for four and a half billion or four billion years on this planet, we've been evolving to higher levels of complexity and uh, manifesting higher levels of potential in ways that are beyond our imagination prior to them existing. And so I'm arguing that that same process, which, by the way, is the regenerative process of living systems, can act on our economy if we have the wisdom to align our economy with how life works. And so the, 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 my belief, and it's, it's, a, it's a hope, it's almost a faith system, is that, yes, we need to you know, do things differently. We need to transition to renewable energy. We need to massively increase regenerative agriculture to get our carbon, the carbon cycle back into balance. But it's not simply doing more, doing less with what we have and sharing. It's that the, all kinds of good things are going to be possible um, as a result of this regenerative process that is going to create prosperity and abundance in ways that we can't see today. So it's actually like, a, like an artist who is forced to put a painting on a, on a, you know, on a 12 by 12 um, uh, piece of fabric the, the the constraints we're bumping into will actually be the source of new creativity and that the future is actually not going to be dark. It's actually going to be brighter because of this, uh, if we can align with this regenerative process. So you have a pickle, though, with uh, the sustainability people, because you, you told me that that process is an incremental process. So you're you're sort of you're you're not on board with the degrowth because you think that's essentially what you just said. It is it is kind of a negative process when this regeneration actually could generate new types of innovation as long as you understand what frame you're finding yourself in. Sustainability, on the other hand, is this eco efficiency argument, right? That we're going to live within our means, whatever our means are. Uh, the problem, of course, being that the thing has been, you know, the concept has been around since 87, at least. And, you know, obviously way before that, because it originated yeah. in environmental economics. Uh, but, you know, arguably that change process with that concept takes takes too long. Yeah. So why is it that sustainability in itself isn't enough? So I guess the first thing I would say about this is that I think we need to avoid either or. You know, it's not it's not that it's either sustainability or it's regeneration. I would argue that sustainability is well, what, what we don't really know what it means anymore. It's been misused so much. But the the desire to do things more efficiently, the circular economy, the, you know, reuse, recycle, reduce the, the degrowth itself. Absolutely. We need aspects of our economy to shrink. So I, I'm not against degrowth. We need the fossil fuel industry to degrow a lot. <laughs> um, so it's it's a both and. It's a all of the above. Um, the sustainability efforts, broadly speaking, fall into a category of let's do less harm, right? Let's do what we're doing, but do it smarter, less harmfully. Even a company like Patagonia would acknowledge that's what 
their core business is doing is figuring out how to do less harm, um, which which they themselves acknowledge is not nearly enough um, when we're so far over the, the carrying capacity of the planet. But doing less harm is essential. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a both end. And um, I, I guess I like to think of the, this regeneration um, uh, or regenerative potential as the, um, let me say it the, the, the reverse way. When we realize that our sustainability efforts uh, are not going to cut it, no matter how important they are to do, and we realize the challenge of degrowth as a strategy, because, you know, forget about the stock market valuation and the value of the loans and bonds and debt outstanding that is essentially designed uh, on perpetual growth. All of our government uh, funding systems are predicated on ever-growing tax receipts. So we've kind of designed society around the idea that, that, that everything will continue to grow in exponentially and indefinitely into the future. And so, you know, to use the expression of how do you land that plane while changing the engines, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's beyond any human's ability to even get their head around how that transition can work. And so for me, the, the radical proposition of regeneration is that if we create the conditions for health, which is what living systems do, you know, our body, we're born like with magical capabilities. But if we eat the wrong food, if we don't exercise, if we smoke, if we live poorly in all kinds of ways, we degrade our, our, our body's natural ability to be healthy and to manifest our potential. We've essentially done that to our economy. So just like if you're, if you're overweight and smoking and unfit and you, 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 you can't imagine how you could be healthy and prosperous again, if we simply realign our economic system with these conditions that create health, um, and, and I've seen this, this is not just some theoretical thing. I mean, it, it happens in the real world. I mean, the regenerative agriculture is where this is, um, has manifested first. And, you know, I've seen farmland where on one side of a fence line, there's degenerative agriculture, destroying soil, degrading, um, uh, flooding, not retaining water, biodiversity goes away, carbon sequestration turns into carbon release. And on the other side of the fence line, it's holistically managed grazing where all these positive things are happening. So this is literally where I got this insight. If this is possible to do on a living system called a ranch or a living system called a farm, why is it not possible to do this on the living system we call an economy? Yet, John, it is the case that it took you who spent full time on this yeah. thinking process, uh, the better part of almost 10 years to fully sort of complete that reflection. And you turn to uh, a whole literature, some of which you've shared with us. And then I know Alan Savory and others in sort of holistic management of agriculture have been influential, uh, Jude Caravan, uh, Caravan on, uh, you know, mysticist philosophy and a bunch of other thinkers that we are not going to have all uh, time to go into the details of all of those. I just want to ask you on a, on a 
general level, do you think that the kind of transition we're speaking of, is there a possibility that it can be short-circuited or is it going to take each of us that amount of years to go through this sort of grieving process that it must be to realize that our current paradigm may not be the right one and that we need to embrace uh, you know, another paradigm that's not even fully formed yet. Mm. That's a, it's a great question. Um, so, so one of my teachers, uh, a woman named Sally Gorner, who's a, I think she would describe herself as a, um, energy net energy network flow scientist, but she, she's a, She's a living system scientist, but particularly interested in energy flow networks. And um, she said something very important to me once. She said, John, systems only change in, in response to pressure. And so, you know, how does a company go bankrupt? It goes bankrupt slowly and then quickly. And so how are we going to do this transition? Slowly and then quickly as the pressure builds. And, um, and, and, and unfortunately, we will have no choice but to transition. The only question is whether we, whether it's pure chaos uh, and out of control and 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 leads to really bad outcomes, or whether we can sort of, you know, flow with it and and reorganize the energy into a more effective structure for an economy. And um, the 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 good news is that the pressure. The bad news is the pressures are rising. The good news is that the rising pressures answer your question, which is that it absolutely won't take as long in the future because we'll have no choice. And I see that. And the other thing I would say is that people who are under 30 intuit this, right? I mean, it's it's old guys like you and me that struggle because we're locked in a paradigm. Someone who's 30 years old or 20 years old and sees the world that they see, they're not attached to the paradigm the way the way I am or was and the way, you know, people in our generation are. And so I'm actually quite optimistic that things can change much faster than we think. Uh, Where I'm concerned is that we get this living systems paradigm um, disseminated fast enough so we don't grasp onto techno euphoria uh, and, and, and false prophets, if you will, of you know technological solutions to problems as opposed to that are essentially accelerating the disintegration of our society i mean just look at what happened with crypto you know there were all this all this promise about blockchain and and cryptocurrencies and it essentially got you know corrupted by the extractive speculative finance paradigm and and um and yet you know, we're doing a a, a, a a dialogue on on Thursday about the potential, the massive potential that blockchain and and um, uh, and decentralized uh, finance can actually have to usher in this regenerative economy. So it's it's you know, it boils down to do we do we will human consciousness rise fast enough? to use the technologies and tools at our, at our fingertips now in such a way to accelerate the transition we need, or will it accelerate the collapse that's on, underway already? All right, so leaving, leaving aside 
the timing of the collapse, which I know you kind of refuse to, to give because it's, it's difficult, right? But you're, you're seeing an imminent collapse of capitalism and essentially you're agreeing with the limits to growth analysis uh, and, and you're just furthering that and it's, it's going to happen. The question is, of course, when. But the more interesting question for me then becomes what sort of preparations are fruitful among the learned uh, you know, who are kind of starting to see that this is perhaps inevitable within their lifetime, depending a bit how old people are. But let's assume that it is going to happen within many uh, professionals' lifetime. Mm. Now, it makes sense to to make some sort of preparations for that, either for yourself or for your children. Mm. Now, what sort of preparations mm. are required here? Is it government planning? Is it, uh, you know, Technology, but not technology as in like kind of emergency solutions that are mm. big bang uh, for your buck, but they're, they're sort of more slow and careful realignments of, of types of technologies. And uh, w- what about on the social uh, side of things, you know, the communities, what, yeah. what sort of community building would you advocate that this uh, needs, uh, you know, needs to prepare the ground for? Mm. Well, it's a long list, right? And, and um, yeah. I think the the first thing for us all to get our heads around is there's no silver bullet. Um, we we all want to decide what's the most important thing to do and then work on it, or at least hopefully, as opposed to where can I go play golf tomorrow. Um, um, but um, I, I guess I guess the way I well a couple things for sure I agree with the analysis of limits to growth. In fact, reading that book back in probably 2003 was one of my central kind of epiphany moments um it was the sort of oh shit you know <laughs> um uh this all makes sense and and it's physics it's not opinion right um and and by the way for your listeners you you don't need to read limits to growth there was some research done by an australian researcher um it could be eight years ago now that essentially validated the 1973 limits to growth um, uh, modeling exercise and, and tracked what's happened since then and pretty much said, yeah, they pretty much had it right in their baseline forecast. But um, I, I guess, you know, interestingly, Dana Meadows, who was the lead author of Limits to Growth, also wrote a, um, well, she wrote an initial paper and then a book about uh, leverage points, places to intervene in a system. And I've used that as, the, the kind of the driving strategy for my own work and, and to, to dramatically oversimplify her point, um, there are lots of places to intervene in a system, things like what do we measure, uh, you know, numbers, um, rules, feedback loops. But the most important thing to focus on at the top of the leverage points was the paradigm within which the system exists. So, my passion for promoting this regenerative living systems paradigm is very much tied to Dana Meadows' leverage points. Um, if if we're going to devise some new policy framework to deal with climate change or pick whatever issue you want, but we're trapped in the extractive neoclassical economic paradigm, we're never going to get to the right policy solution. So for me and my work, it's very much focused on shifting this worldview. And, and by the way, Dana then makes a point saying the most important thing after 
even more than that is not to get attached to your paradigm. Um, and I would say that maybe what is unique about me compared to most people coming out of finance is that somehow I wasn't attached to my finance paradigm and, and I was able to let that go. That was a, a fluke in my, in my own makeup that allowed me to, to, to uh, not only allowed me in a sense demanded that I explore this, these questions. Um, but I think to answer your question, um, I, you know, I believe the paradigm shifting work is, is fundamental. Um, uh, you know, I have three children. I think all the time about, you know, I'm running around giving talks and doing my course and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, you know, my kids are going to be living in this, uh, after I'm gone and what am I doing to prepare for their lives? Um, and by the way, I chose to live on the water and, and sea level rise will not only hurt me personally, but damage the entire community that I live in. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a good answer for, for this. I think, I guess I feel that each of us needs to find, it's, it's kind of like the, you know, survival of the fittest. We, we all bring skills and a unique essence to the world. And we need to figure out how to deploy that in a way that's constructive to this transformation that, that will happen. And it, there is no right or wrong way to do it. And, you know, you could argue, well, you should move your family to Vermont and get above sea level. And people do that. And then they get washed out by a, a flood and a river that blows over it. So, I don't know if I don't think there's a place to hide and go be safe. I think this the billionaires that rush to New Zealand and set themselves up with a compound. I mean, I think that's literally insane. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm more inclined to uh, follow um, again. One of the principles is honor community in place. Living systems happen in place. So pick your place, dig in and get to work. Um, and, and there's work to do in every community, in every place that is both social and ecological. And it's, it's interesting how passionate people can get about, you know, you know, separating their career ambitions, getting on the train and going to commute to Wall Street to make money versus what's happening in the community I live in and how can we uh, improve this. And so I... I'm very passionate about the bioregional work that's happening. The concept of bioregionalism itself um, is, 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 I think, very profound and important. And, um, uh, but, you know, not everyone's meant to work on food systems. Not everyone's meant to work on renewable energy. So um, the key thing to me is to, is to find how to, how to, you know, to recognize how big a shift this is. It, it will affect everything. And so if you're a doctor, think about how this will affect the hospital system. Uh, if you're, if you're a, um, a landscape architect, think about how, I mean, it, it, literally, it literally changes everything. So there is, no, there is no answer to how do we prepare for this um, and what do we work on. But John Donham Meadows had a, a good point, how not to be stuck in your paradigm. And isn't there perhaps a danger also that the regenerative economics paradigm version 1.0, which I guess you and others belong to, 
and 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 that's not you know that's also different things it's not one thing yeah but it's an emergent property and you're saying you don't know exactly what it's going to be is there not a danger uh to freeze in sort of one understanding of how this shift is going to happen and then not be open to all of the yeah potential changes that must happen and actually even according to your paradigm must happen yeah. so so in other words what kind of a paradigm is this if it's not if, it, if it's going to be so emergent so i've i've wrestled with that question um i'd like to think i'm i'm open to letting go of this paradigm i believe i am uh, i'd like to think i am um i guess i would say that it's hard for me to imagine if, if, if there were, if, if my understanding of regeneration is even reasonably accurate, which is that it is, it, it, it isn't a new word for sustainability. It, it isn't a fad. It is a descriptive. It's a description of how living systems work in reality. So it's reality. So it's kind of like, you know, Newtonian physics has been supplanted by quantum physics and now even higher physics that integrate quantum physics and Newtonian physics. But Newtonian physics is still reality. And so regeneration is reality. And, and maybe the science will understand in a more sophisticated, nuanced way how living systems work. For sure, that will happen. But, but we're not going to decide that life is not reality. And so I believe the, the paradigm shift out of regeneration will take regeneration as a given and build to a higher level of complexity. It will likely, you know, maybe it'll be, maybe it's the integral paradigm. Um, it's likely to involve consciousness, higher consciousness in some sort, but, but it will be built on a foundation of the regenerative process. Unless, unless the science of, unless ecology wakes up one day and decides its understanding of how life works is completely wrong and regeneration is not real. If that happens, then the paradigm has to go out the door. Um, but, but unless you can make the case that we can build an economy on something other than reality, <laughs> um, I don't see it. I don't see it being displaced. I see it being uh, expanded and, and um, built, built upon in, in the same way that, you know, physics, or chemistry sits on physics and biology sits on chemistry. And, you know, these things are, are cumulative, not, not, not replacing each other. If that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm just reminded that or, uh, an upcoming guest on this podcast, who's a climate scientist, he told me, you know, right now people are obsessing over climate to a degree that he doesn't even agree with. Mm. And it's interesting coming from someone who's a world expert in one of the, I guess, living system cycles that you believe, you know, is out of whack. And, you know, whether you, whichever ecological paradigm you subscribe to, the carbon cycle is certainly, and the climate cycle is certainly one very important system. And it's definitely not the only one. Yeah. But to to have a climate scientist rem, have to remind people that yeah. there's other things in the world that are also important. Uh, that's why I was sort of pushing you so much on this, because, you know, whatever it is that you find at the given moment that is so important, it is always possible that you're pushing it one notch too far and that there are other things that are also important. Yeah. Um, so I just want to maybe leave that question with you. Uh, you know, as you're sort of going back to your 
bankers, because it seems like you, you are very convinced that these bankers need to get this point. And I don't know if it's because they represent so much money, uh, they are the system perhaps, or it is that you somehow believe that if they get the point and everyone else will get it too. I mean, is it not conceivable that the reason they're holding onto their paradigms, um, you know, in the midst of climate change and other things is that either there is a, a kernel of truth in, in their paradigm even, and, and that will persist, uh, you know, even in a regenerative new paradigm, or um, they just pr prove that, you know, you really can't leave your paradigm. Well, so there's I mean, it's a lot, very rare there's, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's there's rare a, there's a lot in that. Um, there's a lot to, to reflect on there. So, um, so the first thing is, you know, your point about the climate scientist um, sitting above this idea of regeneration is this tension between uh, holism and reductionism. If I can go down a rabbit hole for a minute. And this is why the regenerative paradigm is so profound. It's, it's actually, it's actually forcing us to question the foundation of mod, of modernity, the scientific method. So we, we've reached modernity because we've developed this scientific method, which is largely about reductionism, reductionist thinking. We break down what's complicated into parts and we study the parts. So a climate scientist is a, is a specialist who is excellent and focused and expert at a part, which is the, um, uh, the science of, of climate. But he or she recognizes that, you know, I'll, 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 I'll take a guess. The, the comment probably relates to the, the biodiversity collapse that's underway. And species yeah, that's problem. one of the reasons. Yeah, he mentioned that as yeah. one, but also war in Ukraine, other things, yeah, you know, geopolitics. Yeah. yeah. So, but there's other things. But but there's a there's a way to there's a way to see this as a whole, as opposed to breaking it down into the parts. And um, you know, Jan Smuts, who coined the term holism, defined it as the universal principle that explains matter, life, and spirit. So again, there, there is a reality that's, a, that's separate from our reductionist minds breaking things into parts. You know, the, if, you, if you put all the parts of your body on a table, they're not you. They're just parts. And, and understanding how the relationships, again, between the parts is, you know, as important, as important if not more important than the actual parts, is, is this holistic paradigm. So... Um, you know, I, I talk about regeneration as the process, but it is a holistic paradigm, which, by the way, is not new. Um, before the modern ages, people thought more holistically, but then we advanced to think in a reductionist way, which isn't to say that reductionist thinking is bad or wrong. It's just incomplete. Um, Wes Jackson likes to say there's nothing wrong with the reductionist method so long as we don't confuse the method with the way the world actually works. So... Right. Um, I, I think I think getting clear on the holes is um, uh, is a vital piece of, of 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 staying attached to reality as opposed to getting stuck in a in a in a in a rabbit hole um, and and then our we try to solve problems in our rabbit hole and the and the solutions to our problems create the future problems that we need to solve because we lose track of the hole. 
with respect to the, you know, the bankers, I mean, I actually don't, I've given up, you know, I don't knock on banker stores and, 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 and make my speech. I've, I've kind of given up on that years ago. I actually think the banking, um, the banking industry is in collapse. Um, the wall, the, the financial crash was sort of the earthquake. And now these big banks are largely held up by scaffolding of massive regulation. They're, they're not fun places to work. And you talk to anyone who works in a bank and they wish they didn't. And I'm probably being a, a bit pejorative and pr- provocative. But um, there's so much happening outside the walls of the banking system that can, can be terribly dangerous or potentially very um, generative um, that I don't think the banking system will look like it does today in, in certainly in 20 years time, if not, if not 10 years time. Um, and that's a generational thing that, you know, the, the people coming out of school today don't want to go work at Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan the way they did when I came out of school. And if they do, it's only to get trained in order to leave and do something uh, different. So I think, I think, I think, you know, finance in general is, is under massive transformation and what it's going to look like is hard to know. And, and I think, you know, my, my hope is that, uh, more and more people who are awake to this living systems paradigm, uh, will cause things to change. I mean, here's a quick example. I just learned today. There are over a hundred uh, refi. So refi is lingo for you know blockchain. We, we you know and it, it, there's tra- traditional finance, tradfi. There's defi, which is sort of the whole crypto thing. And then there's this whole movement of refi, which are people using blockchain and crypto, but to try to do good things for the planet. Now whether they're good or not, you know, time will tell. I would argue that many of them are kind of trapped in the sustainable finance paradigm not the regenerative finance paradigm, but in, in less than, certainly less than two years and most of them less than one year, there's over a hundred initiatives using blockchain technology to try to um, decentralize uh, the flow of, of finance into good things like deforestation and, and, and whatnot. So I, I you know, it's going to, it's going to change massively faster than any of us are going to be able to keep up with. And so, for me, um, the importance of getting clear on sort of a set of first principles, a compass to follow and to use to check against is um, is vitally important. And, and candidly, it's not going to be perfect. We're they're going to we're going to make mistakes. We have made mistakes, and we'll continue to. But um, um, but hopefully, hopefully, it won't require me knocking on the door of Goldman Sachs and changing the worldview of the CEO. That that's not going to happen, John. It's been uh, it's been very enlightening to to hear you and uh, to be able to ask you these questions. I I suspect that we'll uh, perhaps be back in in this podcast or some other venue, n- not in too distant future, and and the world might look somewhat different. Perhaps not all altogether altered, but. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing with uh, me and, uh, and our listeners. Uh, it was a great pleasure to have you. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you, Tron. Thanks for sharing these ideas in the world. Hopefully we'll meet in person. Let's do that. Sounds good. 
You have just listened to another episode of the Futurize podcast with me, Trondarne Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurize.org store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.